This is your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask with your host, Dr. Judith Bryles on the Rockstar Radio Network. On the show today, you'll find out where book publishing is going and how to take advantage of it. How to identify and avoid publishing predators. What opportunities are emerging as the book trade evolves in new forms. How to avoid losing money and much, much more. Join us now as a variety of publishing pros will deliver insights and strategies to take the author to the next, next level of publishing. It's your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. Brought to you by Author You and The Book Shepherd on the Rockstar Radio Network. And now, here's your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. Fabulous, fabulous fall day to all of you. We're broadcasting from um, Colorado, so we can see the leaf peepers are just starting to come out. We can see um, just the top of our trees with just a hint, a hint of color coming in. And what I love about today's show is that we're going to get into that hint of color my guest today will be Harry McLean, and, and what you might not know about Harry is that he is an amazing author. He's one of those uh, attorneys who has that flair, the gift of the word, but who doesn't know that about attorneys? And he's been able to transform them into many, many best-selling writers. He is the winner of the Edgar Award for Best True Crime, and he was on the New York Times bestseller list for three months. And it was all about uh, th- this one book I'm talking about was a book called In Broad Deadline, uh, Daylight. And um, it's going to be a movie version. Uh, actually, de- it debuted this summer and in broad daylight. And it was about a really a bully in a small town in the state of Missouri. So his, his next book was called Once Upon a Time. And it was another true story of memory murder and the law as the subtitle. And he really has learned the gift and been able to tell it so extraordinarily well of these true crimes. So one of the things that we really want to know is, you know, how do authors pick these subjects? Because I will tell you, this is when when I want downtime and I want to read something, I actually am a true crime reader. I don't have the gift to write it, but... Thank heavens that people like Harry McLean do. So we're going to bring him on, and he's going to tell us some of the inside secrets of how he really pursues the topic, how he drills down into it, how he does the research, how he keeps his tush out of the ringer in case there's lawsuits, um, or maybe there's not. Um, and we'll find out so, so much more on your guide to book publishing today. So, Harry, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Thank you, Judith. It's uh, good to be with you. So let, let's just really start off right at the top. How do you decide on what topics you're going to pursue? Well, I, I think I'm very fortunate in the sense that I'm able to write only those subjects or books that, that personally interest me. As you said, I've got a legal background, and so they all kind of involve some sort of machination or some sort of functioning or malfunctioning of the criminal justice system. But it takes a story that's interesting, where the characters are interesting, and where there's some issue about how the law has gone wrong or failed, where there's been vigilante justice or misuse of, of evidence, some larger issue that impacts uh, society. But you know, it's, uh, there are a lot of people that have to write oh, uh, true crime books once a year, once every two years. And 
when I said I was fortunate, I mean, I, I, I don't write as many books because I still do a little bit of law, but I wait until the topic comes along that really grabs me, and then I throw myself into it. Well, in, in broad daylight, um, and the town took over, when you're researching or you're just kind of probing, how often does that kind of thing happen? Does what sort of thing? The town, a town will take over. They'll become the maybe the prosecutor. <laughs> well, that was pretty rare. That's what made that that story so interesting. Is that mm-hmm. it was happened in 1981, and I remember the day that I found out about. It. I opened a Time magazine, and there was a story of a picture of Ken McElroy and uh, a little headline saying that the town bully had been shot to death, and that it was a matter of vigilante justice and that of course rings true of the of the 1890s not the 1980s in in the old west uh so that um grabbed my interest and i got in a car and drove out there and of course the town was still protecting the killers Mm -hmm. and they're still protecting them today although one of the killers is is dead but that's what made it so interesting is that it was kind of a hundred years late and I wanted to know how the law failed, um, how it, you know, what what happened to the judges and the cops and the sheriffs and the, uh, all the people that were supposed to be protecting this town. And there, on the whole bully thing, there are other bullies and there are other town bullies, but not like Ken McElroy. And he he was a bully with a capital B. Yeah, I mean he basically. Um, for over 20 years, robbed, raped, burned, pillaged, assaulted, stole, committed crimes at will over a six-state area, a six-county area in northwest Missouri. And if he did get charged, he was acquitted, or the prosecutor would back off, or the witnesses would disappear, or the judges would would excuse himself from from hearing the case and. Meanwhile, he's focusing on this little town and and uh, Skidmore and terrorizing them until they come to the realization that that the entire criminal justice system is not functioning and that they're going to have to do something themselves. Well, and I and I think that I have to say as a as someone who has observed different kind of behaviors, or especially my expertise was dealing with workplace bullies. And and not to the extent of what you were describing about um, your t- your subject, but the reality is that there is a breaking point, and people finally do throw in the towel. Or in most cases, what happens in workplaces is people say, "The hell with it, I'm out of here," yeah. and this management system is absolutely inept and incompetent, and I want nothing to do with it. Right. And then they lose millions, <laughs> millions of dollars. Yeah, in in cost and and loss and all that. Well, how often? I mean, you said you you opened up the Time magazine, and um, how often do you get your leads just by opening up the newspaper or seeing something online, hearing it on a news broadcast? Well, the second book I wrote, the Once Upon a Time, was the story about a woman who accused her father of murdering her best friend twenty years earlier, um, based solely on a repressed memory that she recovered of having witnessed the murder as a little girl. And um, that story, well, so he was tried for murder, tried and convicted of murder based solely on her repressed memory. That case came to me, I think, through my agent read about it or saw her on TV. I think it was a 
Um, some news magazine did a little piece on her in the very early stages of the story, and that grabbed me because the the notion of of oppressed memory, even back in 1992, was um, not accepted and fairly controversial. And here, this evidence was going to be used to charge and convict a man of of murder, and it wasn't corroborated at all. So that one. I think I probably would have stumbled on it anyway, but that one was my agent calling me up and saying, hey, you ought to check out this Franklin case in uh, California. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you bring up repressed memories because it was a lot of stuff came up from the repressed memory. Was that a, a fad or that a lot of things occurred during that time? and, and or, or was it really truly a trend, an unburied trend that, that people had to pay attention to? Um, and, and I'm really asking from your experience as you dug into that, because I'm, I'm suspecting that you had to go down multiple avenues of the validity of repressed memories. Yeah, it, I, that's exactly right. And in a larger sense, it was a pretty scary time when we look back on it now, because that was the late 80s, early 90s, when there was this kind of wave of hysteria about child abuse in daycare centers, and all sorts of charges were made, all sorts of people were convicted of things. And one of the things that was a part of that is adult women, primarily women, recovering memories of being sexually abused as children, normally by their father or by another adult male in the family. And a whole therapeutic community was built up around this notion that you could recover a repressed memory of some trauma as a child. And it went pretty much unchecked. The few psychologists or psychiatrists that had the courage to stand up and say, wait a minute, we don't know anything about repressed memories. We certainly don't have the science to support them as fact were uh, were pilloried and, and almost driven out of their profession. Um, and, and that period is over with. It lasted five or six years, but they right. kind of Perry, assumed... you know what? We're at our break. We'll come right back and we'll come back to it. I was so engrossed in your story, I wasn't paying attention. Whoops. This is Judith Bryles. We'll be right back. <laughs> This is your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. With your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. And we'll be right back with more great information right after these on the Rockstar Radio Network. Is there a book in you or another? Author You will show you how to create, develop, and publish your book without being hooded. If you already have a book out, You'll find a supportive and brainstorming community that's connected and creative no matter where you live. AuthorU brings in national experts for its book camps and annual author extravaganza held each May. It has regular meetings and delivers webinars for its members on timely topics. Through AuthorU's extensive network, members enjoy exclusive benefits, including significant discounts for a variety of services necessary to publish. The Resource, its online book publishing news magazine, is content-heavy and it's free. If you want to create a book that has pizzazz, punch, and panache, AuthorU is for you. If you're a hobbyist or a casual author, it's not. Join AuthorU today through its website at AuthorU.org. Follow AuthorU on Twitter at AuthorU and on Facebook at AuthorU, where timely author and publishing tips and articles are posted daily. AuthorU, 
where the author goes to become seriously successful. Change the way you publish online. WaveCloud is a new form for authors to manage all their books' information in one place from start to finish, including pricing and listing summary. To learn more or sign up for email updates, visit wavecloud.com. Every picture tells a story. And it's a truism that people do judge a book by its cover. Nick Selinger and NZ Graphics have been in the business of producing superior graphic cover design and interior layout for self-published authors, independent and traditional publishers for years. He has developed a reputation for excellent work, fast turnarounds, and best of all, affordable pricing. NZ Graphics also produces ebooks and book marketing materials such as posters, sell sheets, postcards, bookmarks, business cards, logos, and more. Books designed for his clients have won multiple book awards, including Best Book Award by U.S. Book News, multiple Evie Awards from the Colorado Independent Publishers Association, Indie Book Awards, the San Francisco Book Festival Award, and Freedom Medal Award from Valley Forge. Visit www.nzgraphics.com or call 303-985-4174 for more details about making your book the success it should be. Mention that you are an FOJ, friend of Judith's, and that you heard about NZ Graphics on your guide to book publishing. Welcome back to your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask on the Rockstar Radio Network. If you want to write and publish a book, if you want to be successful as an author, your guide to book publishing, everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask, is for you. Stay tuned and you'll hear about statistics, scenarios, and strategies on what to do now to get you published. So let's get back to the show. And here again is your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. With us, we have Harry McLean, who is the author of several best-selling books. He is the award-winning, recognized with the Edgar Award for the Best True Crime. And we're really kind of digging in a little bit of how he goes about and does some of the research that he is after and looking at. So I guess it probably begs, how long do you dive into a topic before, number one, Harry, you say, yeah, this is me, it's, it's talking to me and I'm going for it. Um, and then how much time do you spend really in the research of it? I've usually got a pretty good sense about the topic when I get started. I suppose I could come to a, a uh, dead end and, and have to turn back, but I very much believe that even in the day, uh, this day of high technology and email and, and Google searches and so forth, that you, that you have to get on the ground, um, that you have to get out to the place any story that interests me almost has to have an interesting sense of place and an interesting characters to it, and you simply can't do that uh, on on a technological. You have to get out and pound on, knock on the doors, and walk into the cafes, and 
going to the courtrooms and hang out in the bars and get to know people and get them to trust you and get them to open up to you. Um, so for me, it's still very much a personal experience. I think if you're doing more historical research, you wouldn't um, necessarily need that sort of an approach. But I want to I want to feel the people. I want to feel the crime. I want to feel the place because I think only when I get that sort of personal involvement in it am I going to be able to describe it in a way that puts the reader there and that that takes a lot of time I mean the first book uh, in Skidmore Missouri was over three years I was out there off and on three or four months at a time until I finally became a part of the community and and lived with the family there and but I ended up doing a lot of things that weren't really investigative. I went to, um, I'd go to bake sales, I'd go to church, uh, uh, hang out at rodeos and so forth, mainly just to become a part of the scene and to get a feel for the place and the characters, and also to kind of get people to to relax when I was around. Um, The one in California about the repressed memory, that took a couple weeks. Well, that was a trial book. We sat through the trial of the man that was accused of uh, murdering this little girl 20 years earlier. And well, so the structure that, of that book is the trial. Well, let, let me ask you about that, because I, re- I remember reading a lot in Vanity Fair, Dominic Dunn's articles, you know, some of the trials he would sat through. And, of course, the last, I think, really big one was the O.J. Simpson right? Um, and, and following some of his articles. When you're sitting in a trial... I mean, how are you being swayed? Are you are you able to kind of just do step away and, uh, and I'm just taking down the facts, ma'am, type of thing? I mean, where are you when you're sitting there? What are you what? looking for? I think, you know, I sit there as a lawyer because I have mm-hmm. that training, so I'm kind of looking at it through that perspective. What's going on technically here? Is this evidence going to get in? Should it get in? But um, a technical account of a trial won't be interesting. Um, so you kind of have to have to open your observer's eyes and make it into a story. And a trial is a story. It's a it's a it's a classic drama. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has main characters trying, you know, all disagreeing and, and and telling their stories and so forth. So if you tell it right, you can really make it into a into a great drama. But that means you also have to kind of personalize it, like. In the Franklin case in California, Eileen Franklin, the, the daughter that was accusing her father of murder, was an incredibly dramatic witness. She was very charismatic, very powerful, very beautiful. And the defense lawyer who was cross-examining her was himself very, very skilled. And the playoff of those two was... Uh, was fascinating. It was it was you know it was um, it was a great drama. So you have to be kind of accurate about what's going on, but you also had to catch the flair of the story. When, when you're sitting in a trial, and 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 it, number one, you've got your attorney hat on, but you've also got this observant hat on, and you've got the story unfolding on there, and and I'm sure that there's a variety of twists and turns. Have you ever been kind of shell shocked? with some of the statements and then the outcome and and what's that what's that do for your writing well you know part of it yeah i mean you never know what's going to happen in a trial and you never know what the witnesses are going to say and and no matter how well the lawyers prepare 
there always are surprises, and there were great surprises in the in the Franklin case. And what would happen is, you know, the minute some we didn't know who the witnesses were going to be till they were called, and there were a lot of surprises to us, and us meaning the people that are watching the the trial. And so the minute they were done testifying, we would go whipping out the courtroom doors and try and grab them for an interview or try and get their phone number and, and talk to them later. So you're kind of watching the story, but you're also kind of involved in the story, trying to track people down who have testified. And you're also trying to ingratiate yourself with the lawyers so and the clerks and the bailiffs and the stenographers so they'll give you breaks and let you look at the evidence and maybe let you look at their files and so forth. So um, you, you, you never really know what's going to happen in a trial, which is kind of what makes it exciting. And then how many trials have you sat through then? Uh, two. The third book, um, The Past is Never Dead, was the trial of a Klansman in 2007 for the murder of two black youths in Mississippi in 1964. Mm-hmm. It was one of those stories of Mississippi trying to clean up its past by prosecuting Klansmen for murders in the 60s that they got away with for 25, 30 years. That trial was interesting because of the drama that was playing out there, the the racial drama, the attempts of Mississippi to clean up its past. And, and not only that, it was, wasn't at all clear that he was guilty of murdering these two black youths. So that had drama and uncertainty and great kind of a cultural grip to it as well. And then, and then with that, because that was a fairly recent type of thing, that how, how did the local media, I mean, do, do you, as, a, as uh, someone who is writing on this, do you really grab up all the thing that's being written to, to, to just stockpile it so you can come back to look at it or to see if they've got other sources or to discount it or, I mean, what do you yeah, do? Well, the, well, the first thing I do is, is check with everything that's been, that has been written or, or published. It's a little bit easier to do that now on the Internet, but yeah. you have to make, I've always been able to make uh, good contacts, good relationships with the local media because they know the characters, they know the cops, they know where the files are. Um, and sometimes they're a little jealous about you coming in and, and ripping off their story, but by and large, um, they kind of like being a part of it too. And and I've always made allies with the local journalists um, to use their sources and to you know. Then they like to influence the the story, and and some of them have become good friends. But but you almost I'm sure you could do it without them. But they are on the inside, and they can. Uh, a rain, you know, they know if you want to go for a prison visit, they know the warden, they know the phone number, they might make a call for you. So they're actually very important people in the process of researching, absolutely. So when you're doing your research, and, and of course you need to tap into the records, do you have kind of like a step one, two, three that you go through when you start putting together? You, you decide, okay, I'm I'm going to do this story. Is there, as you're setting up your files and you're going through and you, you know you have to go for records, is there, is there, are there specific steps that you would go through or is it going to be different in every case? Well, I, I've, I'm not that well organized a, a person and what I start off doing is just with a piece of paper sitting down and writing down the name of every person that I can think of in the story 
that I would like to talk to, and then starting to talk to them. And, and you get those names from the newspaper articles, from the TV reports, or from the court records. And and then with each interview, you you hopefully get more names and more people. So that kind of keeps growing, and then you scratch people off. And at the same time, you are getting into the documents involved. It kind of depends on the on the story uh, as to how much the documents are involved. In the in the Franklin case, there were in the in the in broad daylight case, there were a lot of documents because he had gotten rid of. Um, he had he had you know committed so many crimes for so many years that they were hidden away in courthouses all over. So I um, guess I have to ask this the number one question: How did they get hidden? Um, well, they Who were was sealed. Protecting him. They, they were sealed. And when he you know, he was accused of rape, um, thirteen counts of rape against a girl for when she was thirteen years old, and he ended up later marrying her. And uh, um, the prosecutor or the judge decided that they didn't want the publicity and they sealed the records. Um, there you go. So you can turn around and sue them if you want, but it's going to take two, three, four years even yeah. if you do succeed. All right. So well, what on you that, do let's is you try and go to another way. I went to his lawyer. All right. And, and with that, and hold on to that thought because we're going to come into our, our bottom of the hour break. But let's find out how Harry goes to the lawyer, gets more information, and maybe we can get some things unsealed. Perfect for a true crime writer. I'm Judith Bryles, and we'll be right back. This is your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. With your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. And we'll be right back with more great information right after these on the Rockstar Radio Network. Since 1987, Color House Graphics has set the standard for quality book production. Whether you decide to print a small quantity of books or need a large print run, depend on Color House to help you. You'll receive professional help and advice the moment you reach one of our representatives. If you mention hearing about us on your guide to book publishing with Judith Bryles, we will provide you a discount on the first order you place. To speak with a project manager, call us toll-free at 800-454-1916 or visit us at www.colorhousegraphics.com. Do you need postcards that make a statement? How about business cards, flyers, brochures, or NCR forms? TuVets is the solution for all your printing needs. Providing services specially designed for authors, we deliver exceptional quality colored printing. Most important of all, we specialize in reducing your printing costs. No more waiting. No more standing in lines at your local printer. Online proofing. With our pricing tools calculator, you can get instant quotes on all your printing products, as well as shipping rates all over the United States. Just a few clicks of the mouse and you're on the way to discovering how easy and convenient online color printing should be. Contact our friendly, human, account representatives. We recognize that you want answers, not voice prompts. Visit our website at www.tu-vets.com or call 1-800-894-8977.
When Ned Thompson and Harry Shore started Thompson Shore in 1972, they believed employees with great character would make up the best company. They were right. They hired people who were not only experts in bookmaking, but who were obsessed with quality and delivering exceptional customer service. Almost 40 years later, Thompson Shore remains a 100% employee-owned company. Ned and Harry knew that successful customer projects are a direct result of empowered employees. We specialize in all books for large and small publishers. Creating beautiful and well-made books, we're dedicated to pleasing our customers by making the experience a good one from start to finish. The personal touch we have with our customers allows us to be innovative in solving their most difficult challenges. Our platform also ensures that we can remain flexible to meet our customers' unique needs and expectations. Our marketing kit can create buzz for your title, enhancing the promotion of your book during infancy. When you need to test the market to gauge your future sales, we can provide digitally printed books that will transition seamlessly into a larger offset run. From ebook to hard copy to delivery, our skillful customer service teams are at the ready to answer your most pressing question. At Thompson Shore, we know that making the highest quality books requires more than just best technologies. It requires superior customer service, professionalism to the trade, and commitment to environmental and social values. With these standards of excellence in place, you can be sure that we will always help you put your best book forward. Welcome back to your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask on the Rockstar Radio Network. Coming up, you'll hear more about statistics, scenarios, and strategies on what to do now to get you published. So let's get back to the show. And here again is your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. Well, at the bottom of every hour, we always have one of our sponsors, and one of our sponsors is AuthorU.org. It's a membership community that is designed for the author who really, really desires to be seriously successful. And if you're in the Colorado area, Colorado is the mothership. We do have a big event in May where there is a, a three-day extravaganza and people fly in from all over the country. Actually, we had five different countries represented last May. The dates for next year are May 2nd through 4th. And if you want to know what's going on in publishing, you'd want to go to that because uh, Kevin Breyerman, who happens to be the publisher of Publishers Weekly, the Bible in the publishing industry, will be the opening keynote. If you're in Colorado and if you want to know how to successfully book market, especially in the social media area, we have a special book camp called Book Marketing with a Twist. There will be really uh, a beginning as well moving into advanced strategies of dealing with Twitter, all the inside strategies of how to market your book in the ebook format, whether it's Kindle, iPad, or the Nook area. We're going to have a special section dealing with the whole segment of mobile marketing. And then we have a segment focusing on book trailers and how to make them rock and roll. So a little bit of something for everyone. It's designed to take your book marketing as well as your book success to the next level. How do you get information? If you go to Author U, using the letter U, authoru.org, just click on October 6th on the right side, the book camp, and if you send me, 
Judith at Bryles.com, a personal email, you'll just happen to get a special discount when you do arrive. So that's authoru.org. The date is October 6th. It is all day Saturday from 8.30 to 4.30, right in the metro Denver area. All right, Harry, so we were talking about uh, uh, your research and, and, and how you got names that led to more names, and um, and, and I suspect that that some things are surprising, and you mentioned the sealed records, and and we went to break at that time, so we wanted to come back to that, especially dealing with the situation in Missouri where you had someone who raped someone, um, thirteen rapes, and ended up marrying. It's, it's kind of you, you know you're right. You never know what path is going to open up for you. So one of the problems with that is you really need to talk to everybody. Every name you get. You need to, to talk to them, even though if they're a peripheral person, some of those people on the outside, what appears to be the outside, in fact, are, are on the inside or they know somebody on the inside. So it's kind of like you have to get really almost hyper-neurotic about it and say, every name I get, every file I get, every phone number I get, every address I get, I'm going to track it down. And, and you kind of, one of the problems is you never know when you're done. You know, you have to kind of set an artificial line out there and say, okay, that's enough. But on the, what happened on the, on all, all of McElroy's criminal cases was really interesting. He, of course, was dead. He'd been shot to death. Uh, and I went to his lawyer, who was a Kansas City mob lawyer, and had gotten him off all these offenses over the years, and I knew he had the files, but I certainly, I did not expect him to give them to me. It was almost kind of as an afterthought, and I went and talked to him. Uh, uh, and he was, and I also had not talked to McElroy's wife, who was the one that he had raped when she was a child, and uh, I could not find her, and so I went and talked to him, and the minute I sat down, I realized this is a trial lawyer with a trial lawyer's ego, and he knows I'm going to write a book, and he's going to want to be a star in it, and about an hour and a half into the conversation, he called in his secretary and said, uh, Beth, this Harry here is writing a book on this story. I want you to get, I give him that room over there and a copy machine and all of Ken McElroy's files. And I was like stunned because it, it gave me all this information, dates, times, places, witnesses, transcripts. I mean, I got so anxious over, I kept thinking he was going to reverse himself when I'd sit in the room running this copy machine as fast as I can. About every half an hour, I'd take my copies out and stick them in the trunk of my car and then go back in again. Wow. So did you ever talk to her? I did. So we're sitting there, and he he makes a judgment that I'm a decent guy, I guess. And he picks up the phone, he dials it, and he said, Trina, uh, I have a fellow here who's writing a book, and I think you ought to talk to him. Uh, I think it'd be worth your while. And she was down in the Ozarks at the time. She had remarried. And uh, I called her and set it up, went down and talked to her and had a an amazing three-hour interview with her because this time she's about 20 years old, 21 by now. And I wanted to see her perspective on everything. She's a key player in the whole thing because by the end of the story, she's riding shotgun with Ken McElroy. She's a part of his reign of terror. Um, and so, yeah, it was. I was the only one that ever interviewed her, and it was a fantastic interview from an author's point of view. She just died um, about five or six months ago, 
uh, young death, but she did remarry and have additional children. She was a, a controversial character because she was so young when he got a hold of her, and uh, and yet she ended up participating in his reign of terror. So there's a lot of controversy about what sort of a person she really was. Well, it also, I mean, for some people can also take another area that there's a lot of data on uh, young people or, or anybody who has been abused that there is information that shows that they in turn become abusers. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and her her parents basically abandoned her to Ken McElroy. He burned their house down and they... <sighs> And he, they they fled. They took off for uh, for the Ozarks and left her to him, and nobody else came in and and, and protected her. And I have to that, go back know, and read in broad daylight. Yeah. <laughs> We're with me. This is for for this hour. Our guest is Harry McLean, and he is a best selling New York Times author. He has won multiple awards and recognition for his true crime writing. And we're talking about how do you put that together. So, Harry, what would be some of the advice that you would give to someone who is just going down this path of writing? And, and uh, really writing, you know, writing saying, a true story, nonfiction narrative? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, that, you know, the first thing would be that you have to open your mind up in the beginning as broad as you can, as wide open as you can get it, or you're going to miss things. If, as soon as you start to form a hypothesis about what happened, who's guilty, you're going to start narrowing your field down of investigation. Now, that's inevitable. It will happen, but you need to struggle against it and not become uh, uh, an ally of one side of the event or the other and stay in neutral or you'll, you, you'll miss people, you'll miss stories, you'll miss characters that could be more interesting. So really open up as wide as you can and stay as, as neutral as long as you can going into the story. And then, as I said earlier, follow up absolutely every lead that that comes your way. I mean, I, I would sit down every night and make phone calls from, you know, five until five until 11, setting up, setting up interviews and driving all over everywhere. Um, Cause you never know who's got in and you never know who's going to cooperate with you either. Some of the people who have the least interest in cooperating with you who, who really shouldn't cooperate with you in terms of their interests will, they'll just, for some reason, uh, they'll sit down and open their files and open their, you know, their albums and give you pictures and tell you the whole story. So you, that kind of, I'm going to run down every lead until I fall over, um, is another, is another kind of aspect to it. And you, you, you can't help but start to find yourself being more sympathetic to one person or a side, but you need to learn to keep that to yourself too. Cause as soon as people spot that, um, it'll turn them off. You know, years and years and years ago, I had dinner with Truman Capote. That we were driving down. I, I lived in Northern California at the time, and we were driving. And I, I was driving, and he was in the passenger side. And and he was the character of everything that you had seen and read about him, absolutely. And we were just driving down the peninsula from San Francisco to down to where I live. And he was all of a sudden he just sat up, just erect, and he started recognizing everything in the area because he had done a lot of his research and interviewing from in cold blood because right. Perry's sister lived in San Carlos. Right. And it was fascinating, fascinating what came that out of his mouth. That must have been a mouth. real treat. 
No, oh, that was a treat. It was a treat. All right. So when you when you're interviewing these people, do you carry a tape recorder with you? I kind of do it if I'm going up to the door cold, which is really the way I like to do it. Um, they can hang up on you too easy, or they cannot answer your your email. If I'm going up to the door cold, I kind of judge who they are. If they're like kind of a secondary, if they're a secondary participant in the story, I don't worry too much about it. But if they are a, a main character, say. Uh, um, one of the victims of whoever it is you're going to write about. Um, I tend to vary my approach. Often I'll put my notepad in my back pocket and uh, walk up and start to introduce myself without them seeing the notepad, much less the tape recorder. i found that if I can get in the door, I'm fine. And it's really kind of gauging saying what it is you're doing and then reacting to them quickly as you see them shift for against or out of curiosity then kind of varying like in the right so when we come back to that let's finish up that part about that interviewing and then we'll talk about how did you protect yourself from being sued as well as your research and your book this is judith Bryles, and you're listening to your guide to book publishing This is your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. With your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. And we'll be right back with more great information right after these on the Rockstar Radio Network. Writing and reading are moving to the cloud. WaveCloud represents a whole new community for writers and readers to connect, communicate, evaluate, and share. Writers hone their craft and build their business. Readers build their favorites. Sign up for updates at wavecloud.com. The book shepherding concept is simple. The publishing world is changing, and so must you. You need an experienced shepherd and a guide to partner with you as you create, strategize, develop, publish, and achieve your publishing goals. You can't do it alone without paying the price. You can spend your money creating a book that turns out to be so-so, or you can create a book that looks and feels classy, builds your brand, and is a financial success, a bestseller. It's your choice. You choose. You need the book shepherd. Publishing is riddled with obstacles, sometimes nightmares for the author. You don't need problems. You want solutions. Dr. Judith Bryles will shepherd you through the maze and the chaos. At times, she's had to step in and rescue a book, a book that has been sabotaged by a publisher or by a publishing service provider or sometimes even the author themselves. Judith Bryles is the book shepherd if you want to create a book with no regrets. Give her a call today, 303-885-2207. That's 303-885-2207 or email her at judith at bryles.com. By the way, Bryles is spelled B-R-I-L-E-S. Follow Judith on Twitter at MyBookShepherd and on Facebook at The Book Shepherd. At Total Printing Systems, customer service is our priority. We are located in Southern Illinois. Our employees have an average of 18 years' experience and know that customer relationships are important to our continued success. We have been a short-run book printer for nearly 40 years and always stay at the forefront of technology. Our niche is from 1 to 5,000 copies. 
Today, we offer digital, black and white, and four-color high-speed inkjet printing, a cost-effective way to introduce color into your short-run titles. We, of course, offer traditional offset printing as well. Bindery is done in-house, from adhesive case binding to PUR perfect binding to mechanical binding of all types, including side sewing. We provide warehousing, kitting, distribution, inventory management, a new print-on-demand facility, streaming browser-based ebooks, and bookstore. Call us at 1-800-465-5200 for a quote on your next book project. You can also visit our website at www.tps1.com. Welcome back to your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask on the Rockstar Radio Network. If you want to write and publish a book, if you want to be successful as an author... Your guide to book publishing, everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask, is for you. Stay tuned and you'll hear about statistics, scenarios, and strategies on what to do now to get you published. So let's get back to the show. And here again is your host, Dr. Judith Bryles. Oh, we've got a, I really, I mean, I love the story. I'm so involved in it. I'm not paying attention to my cues, so... I apologize, everyone. With me is Harry McLean. He is an author. He is a very successful writer. He also has a pedigree as a lawyer. His specialty is true crime, these true stories. He's a New York Times bestseller. And we're really talking about several of the, how he sets it up, several of the books he's involved with, and how he literally falls in the story. And I, th- I think, Harry, one of the conclusions that I've come to, that as you as the author, if you don't fall into the story and get really involved in it, and as you begin to create the words, how can the author, I mean the reader, not fall in either? I mean, they, you have to really be so engrossed, involved in it, to find it fascinating that your words are going to have to portray that so you can rope in the reader to come along with you, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and that's, that's the art. I mean, the fact gathering is fact gathering, and then the art comes in, in the presentation and the weaving of the plot and the painting of the, of, of the scenes. Um, but, you know, there's another thing that goes on is you get affected by the story yourself. I think maybe I'll write a blog on this at some point. I've been thinking about it. What, what the impact, look what it did to Truman Capote, you know, for example. Um, he fell in love with Perry Smith. Yeah. And, and some people say, his biography says, had a sexual relationship with him in the cell, in, the cell in, in Garden City, Kansas. But, and then he had to sit through and, until these two guys were hung. And it basically was destroyed him. I mean, you, you can make that case that, that it, was, it certainly was the last thing he ever wrote that ever amounted to anything. And the stories like the one in, in California particularly where there was a lot of child sexual abuse and I had to interview a lot of these people, um, it was toxic. It was a toxic story. And I lived in it for two or three years. And you get kind of toxic yourself. So that's kind of an interesting a- aspect to it is what, you know, to, to do what you're talking about, you have to get all the way into it and feel it. And then you ha- at some point you have to say, what do I need to do to protect myself from getting, mm. you know, toxic well, myself. That's a great question. So what does an author do to protect her herself? How, how do they detox in California case, in, in Once Upon a Time, I didn't realize how bad off I had gotten because it's a gradual process. But I came back and the book was finished. And, and the man just because it, it continues while you're writing it because you're reliving and recreating and refeeling everything. 
Uh, and when, once it was done, I sat there and I thought, man, I, you know, something. So I took off for <clears throat> New Zealand, Australia, and Fiji for three months to get over it uh, and kind of get back down to back down to earth. Now, the Missouri thing is, is a little bit different. I'm still involved with those people. Um, they, I go out there every year. I'm going out there in a couple of weeks because it's an on it's an ongoing story. I mean, the killers still aren't prosecuted, and I made a lot of friends there. I got I got involved in the in the story probably a little more than I would if I were to do it today. Um, but as I was saying, as we were talking off the record, when I f- first went there for the first six nine months, nobody talked to me at all. I um, I had doors slammed in my face. Uh, I had my tires cut in my car, sliced open, and uh, I had a shotgun stuck in my neck at one point. I was told to get off the ranch and didn't move fast enough, and I got bit by a dog. Um, so there are some perils out there, but um, that also is what made it into a great adventure, which that's kind of a final point I guess I would want to make is that the whole thing can be a great adventure from start start the beginning if you put yourself into it. If you kind of sit back like a chronicler and kind of just do a factual analysis of stuff, I don't think it'll be as exciting for you. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. Hey, Harry, have you ever been sued for any of your work? No, I haven't. Um, most of the figures are most of the figures are public figures, you know, the main figures in the story, so you've got you've got a reduced libel liability there, but you also um Every publisher has a blanket libel policy which covers you unless you've misled them about what the facts are in the story or, you know, kept things back from them. But it's always a possibility. I mean, there are people in every book that I've written that, you know, have a grievance against me. That's that's inevitable. You will make people unhappy. Um, And, who you know, what does it take? It takes $150 to file a lawsuit. Um, But... You know, it's not something that I worry about if I've done, if I've, you know, taped what I can tape and done my facts and rechecked my facts and and all that. Um, you know, the truth is basically a defense in almost all um, libel or slander cases. And so it, you just have to be real careful to document everything that you do. As an, as an author, have you ever, I mean, I've done a lot, I've done maybe 10,000 interviews, but I'm doing, I'm in safer territory, I'm doing nonfiction in, in that I'm dealing with, you know, uh, things that will involve around a storyline or um, how to correct behavior or and I'm giving real life stories and getting examples and, and I've always given my people I've interviewed, not only do I get them to sign up, but I give the opportunity so they can see what I'm writing because, you know, let's face it, we all have bad days and we wish to God we hadn't said something the way we said it do you is this in your time your neck of the woods when in the crime and you're interviewing do you ever let people see what you're writing and going on or do you just really keep that just all in your arena no i've had i've had two rules and that is one i don't let them see and two i don't pay them now i did pay trina 250 bucks the one the one we were talking about earlier uh, and that kind of violated my my rule. But a lot of times people will say, you know, can I read it? And you know, they're kind of mm-hmm. caught up in the stories that they hear about people getting paid for interviews. And uh, and once you kind of go down that track, it's uh, it's tricky business. And um, no, I've never. I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever let anybody read anything because then you're kind of opening 
the door. If you let one person, you need to let everybody in. And they are going to be surprised. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you don't really tell somebody you're interviewing exactly what you're up to most of the time. Um, you, you kind of put a face out there as to what it is you're doing, but you don't, you don't really tell them what, for, for example, I would tell people in, in Skidmore that I wasn't out to solve the murder. That's one of the first things I would say. I'm not out to identify the killers. And that was true. Um, that wasn't the point of the book. But behind the scene, I'm also real curious. And if someone tells me who they think the killers are or tell me what went on that day on the street, yeah, I'll write it down. And I might put it into the story, and they might not be aware that it's going to be in the story. Okay, and and then which which could be that. So you would you rather get them? I mean, you're setting up at appointments, but you're also just ringing the doorbell and trying to catch them off guard. Is that do I understand that? Yeah, it's more kind of like face to face. People have a harder time turning you down to your face. Uh, it's easy enough to slam down the receiver or not open an email, but if you're a human being there. Uh, on their doorstep, um, and you and you present yourself reasonably well. Um, the other thing I realized was is that I think probably almost everybody in 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 this world does not think believe that they are listened to enough, and it's kind of manipulative in a way. But um, if you start to listen to people and they genuinely think you're listening, and you keep your own story to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's amazing what they'll say. You know, they'll go on and on and on about stuff. Um, and and it's you kind of have to be very passive about it. You comment and nod your head and say, that's really interesting. And then I would always kind of leave them with another series of questions. I would say, you know, it's getting kind of late. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Can I come back and see you again and finish this conversation? And then in the meantime, they would if things have gone well, they would have thought of more things to talk about, and maybe a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, until you really get into the heart of their story. It does. So, I, you know, with what you're telling, I, we only have a few minutes left, but I have to ask you, with what you go through, and, and, and really some of the, you've got to hear some just god-awful stories, just horrendous stories. What do you do to take care of yourself during this? Well, I mean, you, you, the worst stories I heard, like I said, were out in California with, uh, with the child abuse, um, and the people reliving those things. You, it's, if you, if you stay too clinical about it, you won't feel it, and you won't be able to present, at least I won't be able to present it in a way that's, that makes the reader feel what you want them to feel, and see what you want them to see. But if you get too far into it, then you're, you know, you're going to be, uh, I used to start, you know, I would dream about stuff. It would get inside, it would get inside my head and, and I would think about it all the time when I wasn't there. And the only thing I could do was just stay away from the story and come back to the normal world of Denver for a while until I kind of, you know, cleared up and then go back into it again. Um, but I think you have to be willing to, Put yourself at a little bit of risk um, if you really want to get the you know the real stuff about what happened. Exactly. And then, then one quick question: We've got about one minute. Is your research protected that you uh, you go out and do yourself? Uh, that's a good question because in the in my in the second book there was going to be a retrial of the conviction, and um, and I know both the defense lawyers and the police were going to we're going to come after my notes. 
And uh, if there wasn't a retrial, it was dropped eventually, so we didn't find out. But there's, there are report, uh, what do they call them, journalist shields or reporter shield laws mm-hmm. in California. There's a weak one here. Um, but basically, I wouldn't turn them over. I mean, if I got a subpoena, I just wouldn't honor it. Oh, and there you go. All right, we're going to have to have you back. So sit with me is Gary McLean, the author of many New York Times bestsellers. We're talking about true crime. This is Judith Riles. Thanks for listening to your guide to book publishing. Thank you for being a part of your guide to book publishing. Everything you want to know but didn't know what to ask. With your host, Dr. Judith Bryle.